This week on the Science of Politics, how news coverage and social media shape American voters. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. To gear up for 2020, we'll look back at the dynamics of 2016. How did the scandal-prone campaign of Donald Trump escape, with an investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails leading the headlines and priming voters? Can we expect a similar pattern in 2020, with conservatives better able to consolidate and share negative messages about the Democratic nominee? Today, I talked to Jonathan Ladd of Georgetown University about his new book, Words That Matter, How the News and Social Media Shaped the 2016 Presidential Campaign, written with Letitia Baudet, Sharon Budick, Frank Newport, Josh Pasek, Lisa Singh, Stuart Soroka, and Michael Traugott. They find that citizens heard a succession of negative things about Donald Trump in 2016, but remembered one big scandal about Hillary Clinton, her emails. I also talked to Hal Roberts of Harvard University about his book, Network Propaganda, Manipulation, Disinformation, and Radicalization in American Politics, written with Yokai Binkler and Robert Ferris. They find that the conservative media ecosystem produced and shared harmful stories about Hillary Clinton, while Democrats mostly followed mainstream and less partisan news stories that stopped untrue anti-Trump stories from spreading. They both see important implications for the 2020 campaign ahead. Robert says lots of media stories and sharing data point to asymmetric polarization. And we tried to understand the uh, media ecosystem around the national political presidential election in 2016 that elected Donald Trump. The book uses a lot of quantitative data that we get from our platform uh, called Media Cloud, where we collect about a million stories a day from all around the world, from all around the web mostly about politics, but about really any topic. We, for the election, we ended up capturing about two and a half million stories about the election by uh, crawling the web using our platform. Uh, Our large findings were that uh, the defining feature of the U.S. national political media ecosystem is of asymmetric polarization. uh, And that's a fancy word for saying that the media ecosystem is very polarized, but there's, uh, instead of the traditional polarization that we expect to see between the right and the left, uh, what we see is the right, what we say is the right versus the rest. Uh, so in other words, we see a strongly segregated and insulated right-wing media ecosystem on one side, and then we see uh, certainly uh, a liberal ecosystem on the other side, but the liberal ecosystem is closely intertwined with the uh, big mainstream media outlets. The way that we measure this is not is not by subjective measures of our own, uh, but instead what we're looking at is um, audience metrics of attention. So we're looking at what sites people tend to tweet, and that tells us whether a site is conservative or liberal. Uh, so sites that tend to be tweeted uh, only by conservative uh Twitter users uh, we label as conservative and liberal Twitter users we label as left. Um, what we uh, find in the book is that this is a problem that's baked into the architecture of the American political ecosystem. Uh, so this is not a feature, the main problem uh, with the election uh, to the degree that the election featured this sort of post-truth moment uh, in which we uh, it becomes difficult to tell what's true or not true or who cares about that. Uh, the, the cause of this issue is not the sort of um, fancy, uh, more technical causes that have been uh, brought up, such as uh, Facebook or filter bubbles of people only listening to their own group or, uh, crim- or um, Cambridge Analytica brainwashing people through looking at their Facebook data, or even really Russia hacking into our systems. The fundamental problem is that arguably since 1950s, but for sure since the 1980s, the conservative movement has been building a media ecosystem that's with the express purpose of separating that ecosystem uh, from large uh, mainstream uh, journalistic institutions that have a sort of some large set of processes and norms for truth-telling, which are far from perfect, but exist. Ladd says they also tracked what people heard in 2016, comparing it to the news coverage and online sharing. 
we wanted to, in this book, understand the information environment in 2016. So sometimes in political science, people write campaign books that are just the story of the campaign and write, you know, everything that happens in the campaign. And, and those, those books are often extremely well done. And that's not our goal here. Our goal is, is a bit more specific to, to get at um, what was in the news media and what of the information the news media did people really notice and really remember. <laughs> so it's that specific question, but it's, there's a lot to answering that question. Because that information is in a lot of different places, and measuring what people actually pick up is is tricky. So we did that with a number of different data sets, and I'll just mention the major ones that we uh, use in the book. So we wanted to collect information on uh, what was on social media. And to do that, we collected data throughout the campaign from July to Election Day on a random sample on, of what was on Twitter that mentioned Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. We were taking out a random sample of, throughout the whole campaign from the beginning of July until Election Day. We also wanted to measure uh, just what journalists were talking about. So we went back to Twitter and just measured... Uh, what political journalists were saying on Twitter about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. <laughs> so we got a, a long list of politically active journalists uh, and monitored what they were saying throughout the whole campaign as a measure of what journalists were thinking about. We then had a measure of conventional media, which is a list of major newspapers uh, across the United States. And we track and we uh, track the full text of all articles in those major newspapers in that same time period throughout the whole fall campaign, uh, and tracked what topics were in those stories about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton uh, in major newspapers. And then finally, we didn't just track the media directly, but we also had a survey measure that measured what from the media environment. Uh, people remembered. So this is our partnership with Gallup, and this is the last major data set I'll say. It, I'll talk about at the outset. So we we had we had what was on social media. Uh, it was a random sample just out there. We had what journalists were saying on social media. We had what's in conventional a measure of conventional media in in terms of newspaper text, and then we had this rolling cross section survey to see what people actually absorbed. And this was our partnership with with Gallup. So. We had a rolling cross section, uh, which, if you're not uh, if you're not fluent in in survey research terminology, that means you have a new sample every day. <laughs> and uh, here we had a random sample of 500 new adults every day from the beginning of July until Election Day. And we're interviewing 500 people every day. And the advantage of doing that, which survey researchers call a rolling cross section is any, for example, three-day window throughout the whole campaign, you have 1,500 people, a fairly large survey sample in any three-day window. And Gallup was asking different things on these surveys, but we, for our research project, put two open-ended questions on there on, uh, for, the entire 500, for the entire campaign, 500 people every day. And they were an open-ended question that, that said, quote, what specifically do you recall reading, hearing, or seeing about Hillary Clinton in the last several days? And that was open-ended. And then we, we uh, recorded the text people, well, the words people said, because they were phone interviews. And then we had a separate question that asked the same thing about Donald Trump. What specifically do you recall reading, hearing, or seeing about Donald Trump in the past several days? We have exactly what they responded, exactly the words they respond to those questions. So we know what in, in a poll through our rolling cross section throughout the campaign, people say they can recall recently hearing from the media environment about each candidate, and we can look separately about what they're hearing. And so those are the major data sets because we want to see what information was out there and what information people actually absorbed and remembered. People remembered only emails about Hillary Clinton, but not due to the media alone. One thing we thought uh, is that it's interesting that in the Gallup open-ended polls, where we measure what people actually remember and can report back to a pollster, people consistently mention remembering email, the email story about Hillary Clinton 
And when there wasn't any other big story in the news, they went back to mentioning that over and over. And it, and it dominated what people could remember about Hillary Clinton. A fascinating thing, though, is that in our measures of news content, that we couldn't find media content that had that that skew towards email. <laughs> so it's it's not there wasn't a similarly large percentage of email mentions in the random sample of all Twitter users. There wasn't a similar skew towards the email story dominating among what journalists were writing on Twitter. Uh, some people might think that that was the case, but not in our data. Um, and there wasn't a skew towards email in newspaper coverage, but it wasn't what people remembered. So that was that's fascinating to me. And I could think of several possible explanations, but and this is a way in our book like raises more questions than it answers. <laughs> and we say that in the conclusion that this raises a lot of questions that we're not that we hope future work can continue to answer, which is so one possibility is that people remember the email story about Clinton because it was a story that had been around longer. Or just suspicions about Clinton, rightly or wrongly, had been around in their head longer, possibly for decades, right? And they were more suspicious of her based on whatever predispositions they had about her. And that stuck around, even though it wasn't as omnipresent in the actual news environment as it was in their minds. So that's one possibility. Something about the story made it easier to remember or made people's minds go back to it, apart from what messages they were getting. A second possibility, which is fairly different, is that they were hearing about the story in media media information streams we didn't measure. So it's possible that so we did we didn't measure people's Facebook feeds. Um, we don't have access to that. We have access to Twitter because it's public. Um, it could be that the email story was dominating Facebook feeds that we don't measure. We in this book have a lot of media content measures, but we don't have a measure of conservative talk radio, or just Fox News content. So it could be that that story was was covered so much there, and that explains the entirety of, of how it, how people remember, why, why it was remembered so, so much. We think either way, it actually, either explanation, it does illustrate that it's easier for news organizations to repeat and people to remember one story and then get them to remember it, then multiple stories. That doesn't mean it necessarily has a bigger effect on people's votes, but it does mean it's easier to remember. <laughs> you know, and um, it's easier to remember than a different story about a candidate every week. Robert says Trump took advantage of a unique American infrastructure that long predated him. When we look at data from 2012, we see a broadly similar architecture. So there is a, there is a slight growth in degree of the insulation of the right. Uh, but the if we go back to 2012, we see the same basic architecture. So our reading of what happened in 2016 is not that we had a healthy ecosystem and then Trump came along and, and broke it or populism came along and broke it. But instead, again, we, we really trace it back to the you know, 1990s with the creation of Fox News and uh, the popularization of Rush Limbaugh for a variety of reasons, that those were sort of the start, and actually the Drudge Report as well online, those were the start of this sort of really strong segregation of the right wing in the U.S., um, and we see Trump not as sort of causing the, this change in how we operate news, but rather just taking advantage of this of sort of architecture of media that was existing when he showed up in 2016. Internationally, the question is much, much harder. The first hard thing about studying and understanding other uh, international cases is that the vast majority of countries don't have a two-party system. So when we talk about polarization, it's easier to study and it's clearer what's happening in the U.S. because we just have two major parties, uh, whereas in most other countries, they have multiple parties and there are multiple polls. And that means that it's harder to study. It also just means as academics, a lot of our tools that we use to study the U.S. don't work. We have to use different and more sophisticated tools to try to understand these multipolar systems. We do have, we have looked at some countries, and what we found is that different countries work differently. There was some very good work done by my colleague Ethan Zuckerman and our partners at the Sciences Po in France that looked at, used our tools and some of their tools to look at the yellow shirt movement in France. And what they found is that 
the French media ecosystem is much more strongly centered and anchored still in the big mainstream institutional institutions of journalism. And that has provided them with more protection from these kinds of populist movements that we've seen uh, coming online in the UK and the US and other countries. Ladd says Clinton faced skepticism going in, enabling Republicans to raise objections. Both candidates had problems with their long-term image. Both candidates were more disliked than any other previous presidential candidates. And so you would think Hillary Clinton being around so long and being Secretary of State, you know, maybe it's impossible for a candidate being around so long to maintain a a positive image when you're uh, in the fray of politics. There's an older literature on presidential approval that used to always say, you know, almost always presidents get less popular over time. Um, uh, in in more recent decades, it's not clear that that's always true, but that's what political scientists used to think. Uh, but either way, uh, people had long, I think it's fair to say people had longstanding skepticism of Hillary Clinton, despite, and, and I think it's fair to say that her, uh, that that is despite her temporarily high personal approval ratings when she was in a less political job of Secretary of State. Uh, or you, one way, another way to put it is people had long longstanding skepticism of the Clintons. And, you know, if you wanted to find political figures where it was easiest to prime partisanship and, you know, get Republican voters to come home where they might be hesitant to support a, you know, unorthodox candidate like Donald Trump. In, in, in the end, it seems like the Clintons as an opponent was the was the easiest to uh, candidates to do that, to activate negative partisanship, to activate long term uh, partisan attitudes, and as a result, you know the 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 defections of Republicans uh, away from their presidential candidate in sixteen, even though it was a very strange candidate in Donald Trump, th- there were very few defections. They both see traditional media playing more of a role, despite concerns about fake stories. Here's Roberts. It's immediately after the election, there was a big spike in stories about sort of exotic causes of what happened to the media ecosystem that was to some degree separate from the result. So it's not just a panic or we had the surprising result of who got elected, but as much a sense that something really different was happening in the kinds of conversations that were happening where it seemed like built up this sort of expectation and norm for objective journalism over the last, you know, uh, 100 years. And and there was something quite different happening uh, where it didn't apply anymore. We actually have, you know, quantitative results showing that there's enormous dimension, uh, amount of attention paid to Russian hacking of our media system. There's enormous amount of attention paid to sort of Facebook. If you remember after the election, we brought Mark Zuckerberg up in front of uh, the Congress to testify about why he uh, ruined our media system uh, about a a company called Cambridge Analytica that was claiming to have used uh, data from Facebook to do what it called psychographic profiling. So basically claiming to be able to learn so much about you that it could brainwash you with its sort of secret sauce uh, methods of 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 Facebook advertising. But what we, and we did find in our data for sure that the Stories that tended to get a lot of attention on Facebook, but not a lot of attention on the open web through hyperlinks or even actually through Twitter shares, those sort of Facebook heavy attention stories tended to be much less high quality than stories that were getting a lot of attention, say, on the, on the web or, the, uh, or on Twitter. Uh, so in this conf- this certainly to some degree confirmed the this sort of reason that we brought Mark Zuckerberg up to sort of blame him for what had happened. Uh, but when we look at our data, what we find is we do find um, some stories among the most influential stories that were clearly either just pure pure fabrications. Um, uh, so imagine Estonian teenager sitting in his bedroom just making stuff up off the top of his head and then publishing it and then getting, you know, a, a quarter million Facebook shares for that story. 
so we found those stories, but when we looked at our data, we found maybe, uh, I forget the exact numbers now, but out of the top 100, out of the top 100 stories that we found in over the course of the whole election by Facebook shares, I think four of them were these sort of, you know, fake news out of whole cloth type stories. Uh, so that's concerning. It's concerning that, you know, the, the election's a really big story and it's really hard to get attention at that level. So that the fact that four of these stories were just, someone just literally sat there and made it up, um, it's not good. But it does not warrant the level of attention they got immediately after the election. Vlad says fake news was shared less often, but was remembered by Republicans. We examined fake news stories versus more high-quality news stories and how they're shared on Twitter. And this is a really nice, I should, I should especially acknowledge, this is a really nice analysis. And our, our lead on doing this was, was Sharon Budak, who's a computer scientist at, um, at, at University of Michigan and, um, and, and uh, really did a great job uh, taking the lead on, on put, do, putting together this analysis. And first of all, we found that the high-quality, you know, non-fake stories do get shared more. You know, so everything isn't horrible. <laughs> everything on everything on social media isn't horrible, and uh, so they do get shared more and then send to circulate more. And so the social media, at least social media or at least Twitter, does a pretty good job sharing uh, legitimate stories from legitimate news outlets. On top of that, we did find uh, that in our surveys, Republican voters. Um, were a little bit more likely to remember the fake news stories about Clinton than the new the stories that were in traditional news coverage, like our newspaper coverage. So there was a bit of a tendency of you know to um, believe stories you wanted to believe, which we, which we did find, but we did not find that you know Twitter was a big vector of fake news stories. I should be clear that because people use fake news to mean all sorts of things these days. Our definition in the book uh, is stories that are not just have a bias you don't like or slanted, but are like made up, fabricated from scratch. He says you can't completely blame the mainstream media. Did the public really get their perceptions from media content in this campaign? And our story is that not entirely. It seems like certain stories resonated more than others, despite what was in the media environment. <laughs> so, I, you know, you can imagine some Democrats thinking, well, people only remember the media, the, the email story about Hillary because the media talked about it incessantly. You know, we don't find data that would easily confirm that, uh, that belief. You know, it could be that real right wing media did, did repeat it incessantly. But if you're looking for like the media more broadly, you know, mainstream media, it didn't. So certain stories resonate. Um, and it's not that the conventional media or mainstream media, it's not because the mainstream media is repeating them. Um, so I, our, our data actually pretty much uh, complicates maybe the traditional priming or agenda setting stories where, you know, you, you know, these classic and which were which were cutting edge at the time and are great studies where you just track you know, uh, what topics are heavily covered in the New York Times, and you see if that primes voters, right, uh, by just tracking a few major newspapers. Um, and in a previous media environment, it, I, I think that those studies were correct. You know, the stories in national newspapers were the stories people remembered um, because they were also reflected in local TV news and other things like that. Um, we find a lot of complications to that. Um, we don't find that the stories that seem to be uh, where the media set the agenda were because or were straightforwardly because um, they were in major conventional media. And Roberts thinks offline Fox News influence may have been even more important. One reason we study stuff online is because because it's online, we have some data about it. We don't have nobody really has the perfect data that we would want for online. So we have various things that are kind of like attention, but what every researcher would really like is they would just like to know how many times each story on the uh, web was read. And for lots of reasons, we don't have that data. 
so we have, so the data that we use, the main matrix we use are how many times a story was linked to by someone else on the web, uh, how many times a story was tweeted, and how many times it was shared on Facebook. So all of those are really interesting, great pieces of information that tell us a lot about the world. Uh, but they all kind of circle around this, <laughs> this central question of how many times did someone read something. Uh, but that's certainly much better and more detailed data than we have about consumption of media uh, offline. One piece of data we have, another piece of data we have from Pew is just, again, a survey data, not by us, just asks people what their primary source of news is. Uh, and what we find there is overwhelmingly Fox News is the most popular single source uh, for the 2016 election. Uh, the numbers were uh, something like 20% uh, of all voters named Fox News as their primary news source, about 40% of Republicans, so those 20% are almost all Republicans. And there's no other source that comes even close. The next closest source is something like 8%. And virtually all of that, our understanding is virtually all of those users are not reporting going to the foxnews.com website. They're just reporting watching Fox on cable TV. Uh, so that cuts, that alone cuts strongly against this idea that the main problem is Facebook shared stories. Uh, because when you actually ask people, they're saying, 40% of them saying, no, I just, I watch Fox on cable TV. Uh, we have a lot of data also that shows that most of those viewers are, are um, much older than average. Uh, so again, this idea that, um, that this election was primarily driven online by Facebook or by other, by Russian hackers or whatever, is sort of belied by sort of really strong basic data that most of the uh, enormous amount of the really influential content was being circulated uh, through, you know, 1997 technology of uh, cable TV. Online right-wing sites do share more stories of the kind that get shut down by mainstream stories on the left. What we would like to do is... As academics and scientists, we would like to be able to have a score of truth for each story and then just draw a map of where the true versus the untrue stories are. Uh, but that very quickly gets us into very difficult question of questions of what's true and what's not true. And there's no, it's really hard academically to create a reproducible way of understanding what's true and not true. So as academics, our way of determining truth is we get some representative sample of, um, or one way you can do it is you get some representative sample of uh, people and each ask them to grade something for truth. So read a story and say, is this true or not true? And then if you can get enough agreement between individual ones of those uh, sort of what we call coders, if you get enough agreement between those truth coders, then we can say, hey, this is something someone else could reproduce the work that we've done because they could give a crowd of people the same instructions and typically get the same result. Uh, we can't, we haven't been able to do that and pretty much nobody has been able to do that uh, because people don't agree on what's true or not true. So it's a real challenge. Um, so uh, the, the way that we came up with in the book of uh, addressing this question, we had a couple of different approaches. One is that we have uh, what we call a natural experiment which is uh, where we sort of find something in, that's happening in the wild that's sort of broadly representative of the sort of two hypotheses of uh, what might be going on here, which you described well. One hypothesis is, hey, the right has recognized that the, the mainstream media is, is deeply biased toward the left, so they've had to create their own media ecosystem where they're actually telling the truth. And on the left, uh, to battle this media system on the left, demonstrated by you know, the liberal New York Times, uh, that's that's not telling uh, the truth. Uh, the other side is the main that these mainstream journalistic institutions are doing the best that they know, best that they can do to get at what the truth is, and that uh, right wing don't like that truth, so they've created their own ecosystem. So the the uh, comparison that we found is actually about uh, sadly uh, pedophilia. Um, so there were two uh, sort of very sensationalistic stories about candidate pedophilia during the race. On the Trump side, we have, a, we have the fact that Trump was sued by a, a woman for raping her when she was 13. Uh, it's a obviously a skeptical uh, lawsuit uh, brought by a known con man. 
but it is a it's an obvious opportunity for the left to attack Trump as a pedophile. On the other side, we have the the Jeffrey Epstein related stories, uh, where a man named Jeffrey Epstein that probably your viewers have heard of is actually a convicted pedophile and was a uh, an associate and or friend of the Clintons, uh, actually and actually of Trump as well, but has been his the on the right his. The fact that Bill Clinton especially had ridden in his jet with him and uh, visited his, his private island uh, was used to associate uh, the Clintons with this pedophile. Uh, so we decided to look at the treatment of these two stories in the right-wing and left-wing media spheres and in the mainstream media. What we find is roughly equal treatment of each story in the far uh, right and in the far left. So we see lots, in the far right, we see lots of stories that not only associate the Clintons with Epstein, but directly accuse Hillary Clinton of herself uh, sexually abusing children. And then on the left, we see lots of stories about these accusations of this lawsuit against Trump for himself, you know, directly assaulting children. Uh, but when we look at the distribution of those stories, into the core uh, sources within these two ecosystems. In the right ecosystem, the core sources are sources like uh, Fox News and Breitbart and the uh, Daily Caller and the Washington Examiner. These are all relatively new media sources. Uh, Fox News is the oldest of these, and it's 20-ish years old. Uh, and they're all created specifically as part of this sort of conservative movement. On the left, the most influential sites within that mediocre system are these big traditional um, journalistic institutions like the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, those sorts of things. Uh, what we find is an enormous uptake of the Epstein-related stories in the core of the right-wing network. Uh, so they're a little bit moderated. You don't see stories of uh, Fox News directly uh, accusing Hillary Clinton of pedophilia, but you see a lot of stories that are getting nudging as close to that line as they can. So many stories uh, with salacious headlines about associating Epstein with the Clintons as closely as possible. On the left, uh, we see just virtually no uptake at all of the Trump right of the Trump rape story, either in the uh, especially within the sort of mainstream journalistic institutions like the New York Times that are claimed by this sort of um, uh, the right, this, if, if the hypothesis that the right-wing ecosystem is sort of the truth-telling side of the story is true, then you would expect in that the New York Times would just be amplifying these stories about the Trump rape ac accusations as much as possible. And we find, in fact, that they're just ignored because they're not even newsworthy. And to the very small degree they're mentioned, they're mentioned to be uh, uh, to de they're debunked rather than you know amplified. Um, so that's one example that we found to be a, a very strong case. The other example uh, is that we took uh, Trump's accusations of uh, media bias seriously. And Trump, if you remember, about a year after, after his election, he, he handed out fake news awards, and these were sort of cases where you know he claimed the most egregious cases of the mainstream media being. Uh, being biased against him. Uh, and these were um, generally things like a case of uh, a New York Times reporter, you know, uh, reporting that Trump had removed a portrait of Martin Luther King from the White House uh, erroneously. What we found, there were about 10 of those cases, and they were just all of the quote-unquote awards that Trump gave. And all but one of them, the news story was retracted uh, within a day. Uh, in, in almost all of them, the journalists were um, strongly uh, faced strong consequences, including mostly getting fired for their mistakes very quickly. Whereas, again, we contrast that with the right-wing media system, where it's hard to find any examples of retractions. They're very rare in the right wing, even on in the core of the right wing, where there should be ideally a sort of check on the wilder stories. It's very hard to find retractions at all and virtually impossible to find cases where people were um, punished or even fired for their mistakes. But Lad says bias processing might be more important than media bubbles.
it doesn't seem like there were a lot of, or as many as people think, fake news stories flowing around where people were totally believing a fab completely fabricated view of the world. I think our data seems to point more towards, say, selective perception, a uh, you know bias processing view of the world, uh, you know motivated reasoning kind of story, than a uh, you know media bubbles tend to type of story. Type of story. Um, that we don't in our data have a lot of evidence that you know there were these media bubbles or that people were hearing different stories, um, but more that people remember different things. People remember things based on their predispositions toward the candidates <laughs> and, and what story is, is easily remembered because it's been repeated so often, like in the Clinton story, um, uh, or you know, remember what they want to hear uh, based on their partisanship. You know, they want to hear good stories about their candidate, bad stories about the other candidate. It's easy to prime people's partisanship. You know, if they're if they're a Republican skeptical of Trump, but also pretty, you know, uh, have a lot of skepticism of the Clintons in general, it's pretty easy to prime that because there's, there's a lot of, of bias processing. News coverage was quite negative for both candidates, but public impressions were even more negative. The overall tone of the news coverage in conventional newspapers was more negative than in previous campaigns. So the, 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 these are the most unpopular nominees in polling history, and the news coverage reflected that. Now, there's probably some causation going both ways there, right? Probably the fact that they're, once they're unpopular, you, you might expect they get more negative coverage because of that, but also probably the negative coverage you know, fed uh, the unpopularity of these two nominees. We also found that people... Consistent with a lot of work in political psychology, that negative information is more memorable. Um, we found that personal recollections of what people heard about the campaign were more negative than the tone of newspaper coverage, for instance. In fact, like we, things got more negative as you go from the tone of newspaper coverage was more negative than in previous campaigns. But then Twitter content was more negative than newspaper coverage. You know, Twitter discussion of the campaign was more negative. And then what people remembered hearing about the campaign was even more negative than that. Now, that's interesting. And, and I don't know if that's maybe that's a permanent aspect of what people remember and what they can report remembering in, in surveys. There were lots of small scandals of Trump, but they didn't last in the public mind. Measuring some detail, new stories, new stories about Trump specifically, and how quickly they faded. <laughs> and the answer is they, they faded quite quickly. And, and uh, some of those, a lot of those stories in the fall campaign seem to be prompted by the debates. For instance, there was a story coming out of the first debate. Uh, if you recall, the 2016 campaign, at the end of that first debate, the Clinton campaign had a, had a plan that Hillary Clinton executed, which is to bring up uh, Alicia Machado, who was a... Um, uh, former Miss uh, USA, who uh, Donald Trump had said, had said some unkind things about, and 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 bring up this 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 story as a way of bringing up, I think, priming in people's minds generally his treatment of women uh, over his career, um, and this got a lot of of coverage, and and people remembered it right after the debate, and then it faded fairly quickly within a week. It was not something people were reporting that they uh, remembered. And you know, this is a consistent uh, pattern we'd see, we'd see over and over. When in one of the debates he reported that – Donald Trump reported that uh, he didn't pay taxes. So if Hillary Clinton had said in response to some question, you know, uh, I believe Donald Trump doesn't pay any, anything in income taxes. And Donald Trump had responded, well, that makes me smart, right? That got people reported remembering that, but it, but it was gone in a week. People stopped remembering it uh, about after after a week. You find a similar thing with uh, with the Access Hollywood tape. Even actually, uh, it lasted a little bit longer, and a few and a small percentage of people reported mentioning it a few weeks later, but not not a lot. Uh, it, it became a uh, after about ten days into into two weeks, only a very small percentage of people in the polls reported saying they'd heard anything about that story in in polls. He was able to dominate media coverage starting in the primary. We had done a pilot study on the first Republican primary debate in August 2015, 
And this is when, you know, Trump was still considered an outsider candidate and he was leading in the polls, but the polls were still extremely early. But you got a first glimpse of the style of campaigner and president he would be, where he, his personality just dominated that debate. Um, he argued with the moderators and, you know, the, the stories coming out of the debate were all about him, not all necessarily positive, but, but stories all about him. So we inc- decided to include that in the, in the book because we thought it really does illustrate something about his relationship with the media and his relationship with voters in particular, like the theme of the, the, the book is topics and agenda setting as well as tone. And, and we have some, we have some chapter on, 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 on fake news, but it's um, it's a lot of it is about agenda setting. And we, we do show that in the primary People are correct in their perceptions that he dominated news coverage, and he especially dominated what people could remember about the about the um, about the debate. And I don't necessarily think look the how much you remember a candidate helps in the general election because <laughs> because uh, they're diminishing returns. Everyone knows the two nominees, so uh, you know I, I think then it mostly matters whether you get good or bad coverage or topics that are help you or hurt you. But in the primary, I agree that I think. Crowded field without where, where it's not clear who the main opponent to Trump is. And, and uh, one of the problems uh, with the, that the other Republicans had was they didn't co- the other Republicans weren't able to coordinate around one uh, main opponent to Trump. Um, the fact that he dominated coverage of the debate and dominated, we, we did a similar uh, open ended question um, that was essentially our, our pilot to test if these open-ended questions worked the way we wanted them to work um, after that after that first debate. And it showed that people remembered so much more about Trump and what he said than about the other candidates. I think that was a big thing. Uh, that was a big dynamic in the primaries, that news about him was so much more memorable. But Lad says Trump might not be able to skate through this time. People might respond to Trump differently this time because they have so much more information about him. We think, oh, everyone knew about Trump in, we think that everyone knew about Trump in 2016, but they had heard of him. He had high name recognition, but they only knew about him as a famous person on TV who, uh, you know, a, a famous person who was, they thought was rich and, uh, you know, had uh, owned some casinos and it was a reality TV television uh, star. Um, they knew about that and they knew his name. They know a lot more about him now. So so it's possible that people's perceptions of him have a lot of predispositions now, more similar to Clinton in 16, <laughs> uh, honestly, than the way they treated Trump in 16. There's a there's a study, uh, I'm not going to, I apologize, I'm not going to maybe remember all the co-authors, but I believe uh, David Carroll and Liliana Mason are on this 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 study that found that most people didn't know that he inherited money from his father. Most people didn't know a lot about his biography. Actually, I don't think that's going to be the key thing. I just, just that I think that just shows. I don't think it's going to be the key thing in twenty. I just that the, I think that show just shows people didn't actually know that many facts about him in two thousand sixteen. He comes into twenty twenty more like Clinton did in sixteen, where people have strong views going in about him one way or another. Roberts isn't as sure. He says conservative stories don't get stopped by mainstream fact-checking. The fundamental difference in architectures of the two sides and the reason that there's this asymmetry is about the sort of information flow models for each side. So in our book, we talk about two different uh, models. One is a sort of uh, reality check model. Uh, And what happens there is if you think about the media ecosystem is consisting of politicians, lay people, and media sources. Then uh, it's the case that politicians and lay people are politicians are wanting news that's good for them and their side, and that gives them keeps them in power. People, it's very well established that people don't browse news for some sort of civic truth-seeking function. They, all of us browse news for sort of identity confirmation. <laughs> There's a lot of um, a lot of research showing that. So even you know when we're having this conversation and uh, describing our work, one thing we're very clear about is there's no. It's not that we're saying oh conservatives are dupes and the liberals are smart because they're in the system. 
we're all a product of the, the information ecosystem in which we live. It's very well established that that's the case. So the consumers, the sort of lay people in the system or the consumers of the, of the information are always consuming more information just to try to confirm what they their existing views of the world. So they want sort of good news. We all read news for either good news about our side or bad news about the other side. And then the, the media outlets in a reality check system, they're providing some good news to both sides, but they're also providing a check. So they're providing a check on power for those politicians. So sometimes they'll give, they'll publish things that help the politicians of each side, but sometimes they'll publish things that are harmful or, or, or debunk things that um, would be helpful for each side. So a case here is, again, we, we think about this Trump rape story. So the, the politicians on the left and the um, liberal readers of the New York Times are, would both be happier if they were to get headlines saying, you know, Trump, big headlines saying Trump accused of rape by 13-year-old. Uh, but the New York Times, because of these sort of existing principles of uh, journalism that it follows, uh, provide, sees itself, its role to provide a reality check to say, no, actually, we looked at that story and we don't think in reality it has, we don't think it has a basis to reality, or to just ignore it and to not participate in the sort of feedback loop of, of propagating a story that, that uh, is not based in reality. So that's sort of one model of how, uh, the healthier model of how media operate in a democratic society. On the other side, we have what we call our network propaganda model. And in this case, the media, the politicians and the consumers of information are still acting the same. They're still wanting good, good news about their side and bad news about the other side. But in this case, the, the media sources are also participating in the same loop without any sort of reality check buffer. Uh, so, uh, in, so in the case, uh, in this Epstein case, instead of saying, well, you know, we looked at this and we actually don't have any reason to believe that Hillary Clinton was raping small children, uh, so we're not going to sort of, you know, um, publish that. We're not going to amplify that story within this, uh, within this feedback loop. Instead, they look at it and they say, well, we want to look legitimate, so we can't directly accuse Hillary Clinton, but we can, let's see how much we can still amplify the story and get away with it. So thinking back about, you know, is, Bernie, is the Bernie Sanders wing going to take over media and end up in the same loop? The, the architectural issue is that the, the big left, strongly partisan sites like the Huffington Post or Daily Cost, they're the same, there are equivalent sites on the, on the left side to the sites on the right side. So it's not that there are not hyper-partisan people on both sides. That's, that is symmetric. There are for clear, strongly partisan people on both sides who will just publish anything that's good for their side. The difference is on the left, those sites are closely intertwined. They, the readers, the people who read the Huffington Post to a much larger degree also read the New York Times and the Washington Post. And what we find in our research, uh, contra the sort of claims of the, uh, of the conservative movement, is that the New York Times and the Washington Post do provide a very strong reality check buffer so that when these salacious stories come up in the very partisan left-wing sites, they get buffered, uh, they get stopped, either debunked or just not reported in the New York Times. Whereas on the right side, the core sites on that side consistently have been, you know, Fox News and Breitbart and the Daily Caller and the Washington Examiner and, and a few other uh, sites of the same sort. And all of those sites are actively engaged in the conservative movement and provide very little reality check buffer at all. So we don't see my hypothesis is that that's not going to change. Uh, over the next year. We haven't seen signs of that changing, but certainly, again, we're always looking at the data and, and always looking for things, how things might change. They'll both be at it again. Robert sees some changes since 2016, especially on Facebook, but not in conservative media. We've obviously, to some degree, been watching what's been happening during the Trump presidency. There have been a, a couple of changes that are pretty clear. Uh, one is that Facebook for sure has made an effort to clean up its its junk news problem and the data that we've seen internally and studies from other academics have been pretty clear that uh, they that at least for the news sharing side 
um, uh, and for the past couple of years at least, it's not clear what's going to happen during the election itself. They've done a pretty good job at emphasizing uh, more traditional mainstream outlets and de-emphasizing these sort of, you know, what we call Estonian fake news sites, so the sort of sites that show up out of nowhere and start just making stuff up. Uh, so that so that's that's sort of been an interesting change, uh, and will be interesting to watch during the election to see how much that change will affect what people are actually reading. As far as we can tell, certainly through 2017, and preliminarily the data we're seeing now, that this fundamental architecture looks pretty similar. Uh, so it still seems to be the case, uh, and intuitively it, it seems to be the case as well, that the right wing has just, you know, separated itself and that, you know, Trump's language of, you know, constant fake news language about mainstream media has had that the effect to emphasize this existing architecture that's being been growing for the last uh, uh, 30 years, uh, which is just, just to separate the right wing from the rest of the media ecosystem. Uh, so we expect that broadly our expectation studying this next election is that we will see similar results, but we are often surprised, <laughs> and that's why we do the work. So it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to watch over the next uh, six months and year uh, what actually happens during the election. LAD will be tracking 2020 in the same ways for others to reach conclusions. For this campaign cycle, we're doing the open-ended news reception poll again, and we're going to be posting updates as the cam- as the campaign goes along. Last year, we, last time in sixteen, the, the open-ended poll that asked what people had heard were hearing during the campaign about Clinton and Trump, um, we posted updates on what we were hearing as the campaign went along. Then, and Hillary Clinton uh, used our word cloud from the poll in her book. What happened? Um, we don't, we as co-authors don't necessarily endorse. Uh, her interpretation of the data, we have our own interpretation. Uh, she's more willing to make causal claims about <laughs> about uh, the emphasis on email, you know, causing her to lose. Uh, we don't make that claim. Uh, we don't make any claim about exactly, you know, why Hillary Clinton lost and why Donald Trump lost. Our, um, our, our book is more about what's in the news and what people remembered and, and, uh, rather than uh, making a firm causal claim about voting behavior. I mean, there are other books that have, that that do that. Um, the the biggest contribution of our book is really descriptive. But Hillary Clinton was not so restrained. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Uh, she she used our data, and 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 um, the, she thinks this is one of the reasons she lost. You can draw your people, readers can draw their their own conclusions, but that's we don't we don't take that position in the book. But so that people can see that, just like in sixteen, can see our data in real time, just like Hillary Clinton did in sixteen. We're going to post the data in real time. So the last, so last thing I'll say is I hope people will buy the book. It is Words That Matter, and it's from Brookings Institution Press. Well, Words That Matter subtitle is How the News and Social Media Shaped the 2006 Presidential Campaign. It's coming out in May, and we're gathering the data again in in 2020 to to measure news reception again this time and uh, compare 2020 to what happened in 16. And uh, we'll know soon. It'll be a fascinating election. As, as everybody knows. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Jonathan Ladd and Hal Roberts for joining me. Please check out Words That Matter and Network Propaganda and then listen in next time. <laughs>